Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast, Shana Tova. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen. I am here with my co-host, uh, Sadie. What have we been doing this past week or two? Well, I've been given the wonderful opportunity to attend some religious services outside of my religious tradition. Yes. And this was a eye-opening opportunity for me. Thank you so much, Gavi, for inviting me and for taking me and for metaphorically holding my hand through this process i so appreciate being invited and everything that i was able to learn um and oh and shana tova to you as well thank you we're gonna talk about the high holidays services that we attended together um we have so much to tell you and i also have a lot of information that i think will be helpful for people like me who have anxiety and would like to do things that are outside their comfort zone like attend religious services outside of their religious tradition Yes. Okay. For those that don't know, uh, the high holidays are for Jewish people. It's like the new year. It's basically our season of, of a bunch of holidays, like packed in uh, right next to each other. Uh, and we're going to talk about the meaning behind those holidays. We're going to talk about all sorts of stuff, Sadie's experiences and um, just this in general. So, uh, but before we get into that, uh, I just want to say the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast. Uh, we 
are a podcast about my co-hosts life in and escape from the independent fundamental baptist cult usually today we're talking about some different stuff we're talking about uh just general religious stuff so we're talking about jewish religious stuff which is a topic that is near and dear to my heart but we seek to promote freedom of mind freedom of thought and freedom of religion so if you like the show if you want to support the show you can do a couple of things you can go and subscribe to our patreon where we have extended and uncensored episodes available for you as well as sadie's musings and writings about various topics Uh, you can uh, join our facebook group which is called eden exodus and you can talk with other fans of the show you can join our subreddit which is also called eden exodus Oh, and I just wanted to add, this might be a great time to remind people that one thing that you can do to help and support our podcast for free is to leave us a good and hopefully honest review uh, on the the podcast dispensing app of your choice. Podcast Um, dispensary. Podcast dispensary, yeah. Uh, But especially on on iTunes. Yeah, you can um, leave leave us a nice review if you feel like it. Give us the five stars. That's something that you can do that's free that can help support our show. So Sadie, what, what, uh, starting out, okay, what do you want to talk about? What are we going to talk about here? We are going to talk about the high holidays. I'm going to leave most of the like explanations of things, the what the holidays are to you, um, so that I can focus on the experience that I had when I visited these services. So we went on Rosh Hashanah. Yes. Uh, and then we went again on Yom Kippur. Yes. Yes. And uh, I really thought about wearing a camo dress to these <laughs> services just to push your buttons. Oh, but, yeah. Mm, that would have been – okay, that would have been a really funny joke. Uh, I, so I did restrain myself from that one. However, when we arrived for the Rosh Hashanah service, I did lean over and ask you if you got points for the full program for having brought me. <laughs> uh, no, I feel like uh, you, you asked me that. I feel like King T'Challa, you know, he's like, we do not do that here. You know? <laughs> Yes. So I really kind of wanted to prank you and wear a camo dress, but... Oh my God, that would have been hilarious. I I don't want to say like... I mean, you you saw how people were dressed there. Uh, People were dressed uh, somewhat conservative. But like if you had worn a camo dress, some people might have looked at you kind of weird, but like no one would have said anything. Yeah, like I wouldn't wouldn't have gotten kicked out, I don't think. No, they, they don't they don't go about kicking people out um, so i'll tell you guys i guess you know what we're posting the videos of the services because uh oh, right we're posting the videos of the services in the um in the show notes because we figure that some of you guys might want to know what we're talking about so we're going to just talk about some things that happened and maybe uh we will do you have notes about did you go back and watch the video at all to like get the notes together so like for I did not or anything no i did not have time i do want to let our listeners our listeners who are super invested in this um, uh, finals saga that I've been tweeting about and talking about on the show, uh, I did get 100% on both of my final projects. Woo! Uh, but because of that, I, but I worked my butt off. So um, I, did not, it, I did not have time to like go back and, and rewatch the videos. But I think I was able to take pretty good mental notes and, and keep track of what I wanted to talk about. 
Yeah, you, I think you did because we, you know, we wrote down some of the stuff that we wanted to talk about beforehand. And I think you hit all the major points. Um, but just for those who know, um, I guess because I was thinking, you know, I wasn't going to say where we went exactly because, you know, that's but like we're posting the videos of it so they can click on it. So we went to um, we went to services at a congregation, Beth Israel, which is a reform Jewish synagogue in uh, northwest Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's like downtown in Portland. Uh, it's it's a fairly old synagogue there. It's a fairly old congregation. It's been there for more than a hundred years, I do believe. It, 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 yeah, and so we went to services there. We went to Rosh Hashanah there, which was on uh, a week ago Tuesday, and then we went to Yom Kippur there, which was Thursday. I feel like these high holidays, it's mm-hmm. like it's kind of like how Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year are all in a row, but yes. way more holidays. Yes. It's like if we had like three more holidays thrown in there. So let's talk about like exactly what this is, because p- people who are Jewish or people who know, like know what I'm talking about, but people who aren't familiar with this stuff don't know. So basically in the Jewish New Year or, or the Jewish ca- calendar is a lunar calendar and it begins in the fall. So the beginning of the year for us is in the fall, usually September or October. And it's based around like the agrarian calendar in Israel. Uh, or in the Levant when this relation or when this religion was really being formed. And that's what like the, the days are, are based around. So a lot of it is, is based around like, you know, when the harvest is, when the, the spring is, when this is happening, when that is happening. So the high holidays, as they are called, or sometimes called the high holy days, or sometimes called the days of awe, is a name for a period, uh, usually September, October, which is the start of the new year, uh, several holidays altogether. And so if you're Christian uh, or if you're a Catholic, especially uh, the way that I would explain this is it's like at the level of importance where you know how you guys have Lent and then you have Good Friday and then you have Easter like all in a row. Yeah. And that's like that. Lent is the 40 days before Easter. Yeah. 40 non-Sunday days before Easter. And then Good Friday is the Friday right before. Yeah. it's, It's all like really important stuff right in a row. So the main ones, the biggest ones are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And there are a few other ones, um, but Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the two big ones. And Rosh Hashanah occurs, start of the new year, big celebration. Yom Kippur is 10 days after that. And it is the Jewish Day of Atonement where we really have to think about our mistakes and what we have to atone for. And so we went to services for these two holidays. These are the like a lot of times, you know, you talk to Jewish people, you're like, oh, do you go to temple anywhere they go? They're like, I go for the high holidays. Okay, so that's the equivalent of a Christmas and Easter Christian. Yeah. So if you go to temple for the high holidays, you go for uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is what you do. Yeah. Um, And it's it's interesting that the. The atonement holiday is after the celebratory one. I think huh. that that may be like something that's a little bit unusual. I think because okay, in, in the Christian holidays that you were just talking about, we have Lent, which is the fasting and atonement, and then we have Easter at the end, which is the like redemption and celebration of, of the new liturgical year. Well, that makes sense though for you guys at least, because it's like, oh, you have to eat your dinner before you can have your uh dessert. Yes, except right? for it's Lent. So, <laughs> yeah. Except for it's Lent, so uh, sometimes you don't eat dinner at all. Mm, yeah, people do do that. But we're going to talk about fasting. We will uh, talk about fasting because that's an important part of this, but we'll get to that later. So the services that we went to were held outside. Yes. Uh, as like a, a safety precaution. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the preservation of life or the safety of the community as a whole, is that a major tenet of Judaism? 100% that is a major tenet of Judaism. It is a priority. Uh, it comes up a lot. Uh, like So there's this huge mis- uh, like misconception that people assume like an observant Jew would not eat like a ham and cheese sandwich if it were the only food left on earth. Um, if it were the only food left on earth and they had to save themselves or save their family, they would eat the ham and cheese sandwich. Like preservation of life comes before all else, before like rules, before like anything else. We're going to talk very heavily about that next week. Uh, (laughs) Surprise, surprise, surprise. Uh, We'll give you a preview for what we're going to talk about next week at the end of this episode. But yeah, preservation of life, very important. This particular synagogue being really COVID cautious, it's not just because someone is telling them that they have to, but wearing a mask and having outdoor services, that's actually something that upholds Jewish values to begin with. Yes. This was something that actually really irked me before, because in New York, people kept blaming Hasidic Jews for the spread of coronavirus when there wasn't really any actual evidence to suggest that they were the cause of the spreading or that they were more responsible than anybody else. People always want to use them as a scapegoat because they're kind of outsiders a little bit. Yeah, well, I was seeing um, at the time, I was seeing some news articles that showed um, this particular rabbi has told his congregation that COVID isn't real, that they shouldn't wear masks or whatever. But I think something we're going to get into a little bit more in this episode and as time goes on is that even Orthodox Jews or even Hasidic Orthodox Jews are not a monolith. And just because one person, that is not anymore something that you can pin on Hasidic Jews as a whole, then you can pin on all Christians because one pastor was telling his church not to wear masks or that COVID wasn't real, which right. we all know there were plenty of people doing that still. Yeah, are. and still are. Yeah. Um. So we're, we're uh, I mean, maybe we'll talk about that later. I don't know. But it's it's not good to look at people as a monolith. It's not good to like pass laws or, or do things that target one community because you per- or people perceive them as being the problem. That That's uh, really weak-willed thing to do but that's not really what we're talking about today uh we are what do you want to talk about for let's talk about rosh hashanah first and then we will do the offering and then we will talk about yom kippur in the second half of the episode yeah i think that would be absolutely perfect so we kind of split it into those into those two holidays because they are very different in tone so i want to talk about so what i think the best way to structure this I want to talk about like the experience of being at the service as somebody who was there for the first time. And then whenever there's something that you want to input about like the religious significance of things or the cultural significance of the holiday, go ahead and just jump right in to to the flow of the conversation about the actual service that we went to. Great. All right. The reason I want to focus on this, like my experience so much, is I think that there may be a lot of our listeners who haven't ever been to a religious service in a completely different religion. And I want to incorporate into this episode a little bit of how to do that and how to be there, how to be present and feel like you're doing the right thing. Yes. So I remember the first thing that you asked me about when we talked about uh, going to these services was, do men and women sit together? And will people immediately know me as an outsider? And then you asked me like how to dress. Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to know how to not necessarily go undercover, but how to fit in and especially how not to be a disruption to anyone around me on their very important holiday. Yeah. I mean, you were worried though. You, you I, yeah, were. I was yeah. worried because um, the definition that my parents always taught me of etiquette and politeness is not making anyone else feel uncomfortable. 
Mm. So I, I would not want to be out of place to the point that it distracts somebody who is there to worship on their, on their high holiday. Right. That's the, that's the headspace that I was coming from. We were able to sit together. Uh, Men and women sit together, mixed together in families or groups or whatever in reform congregations. But I think that men and women do sit separately in Orthodox congregations. Is that right? Yes. So in Orthodox Judaism, men and women sit in different sections Um, So like when my dad was growing up, he would go to services with his mother and uh, she and him would would sit separately. I had a lot of questions about what to wear. Like, do I need to wear long sleeves? Is a knee length dress long enough or does it need to be like IFB long, like below the knee or any other dress code things I needed to follow? Because a lot of Catholic churches have an unwritten dress code, which is generally cover your shoulders, cover your knees and don't wear jeans. Mm. which goes for people of any gender. And most churches, I don't think, would turn away someone who wasn't dressed that way, but it would be noticeably out of place. I feel like turning people away from church services is – that should be a no-no, no matter how you're dressed in general. Um, but I, I think, mean, IFB churches will do it. <laughs> that's not very Christian of them. Uh, but well. I, you know, I, I think what I told you was that you should dress as if you were going to Mass for Easter. That's what I told yeah. you. Yeah. Because at Catholic Church in Portland, it's a whole different story. In Portland, everybody wears jeans. Like what people wear to church at my church is like nice jeans and a top that is anything but a t-shirt. Because Portland in general, like our office culture is a lot more casual. Yeah. But I wouldn't wear it. So what I normally – that's what I normally wear to mass, but I wouldn't wear that for Easter. So that was a pretty good baseline. Yeah. So the main thing was to – I think was to be respectful of the occasion and to look like you're there on purpose – Although yes. this is a reform synagogue, like I said, they're not going to turn away like anybody. Yeah. So I yeah. ended up wearing a nice like three quarter length sleeve dress, which is like a little above knee length and some low heels. And I felt like I got it about right. Like I felt like I fit pretty well. The dress happened to cover both my tattoos, but I don't think it was necessary to cover them because there were definitely people with visible tattoos. But I thought better safe than sorry. Yeah. Well, I kept telling you that you don't need to worry about that. So it's a reformed synagogue in Portland. The attendees, I mean, they were there in all manner of dress. I think it's probably, I was probably the most heavily dressed person there where there was, I mean, there was people with tattoos. There was people with piercings. There was people, you know, visibly queer, colored hair, no problem whatsoever. People, you know, some people showed up in a pair of like nice jeans and a shirt with buttons. Some people, uh, myself, uh, I wore a full, a three piece, uh, suit, you know, Doncaster wool, even though it was 82 degrees outside. So yeah. yeah. And like, I figured that you were probably going to wear a suit because I know you. Yes. Uh, so I dressed up slightly more than I would have because, um, I've made the mistake before of you wearing a suit and me wearing normal clothes and, and me looking like I was underdressed. But I think yeah. if you're if you're a person with anxiety like me, you're going to worry, especially about what to wear. So I wanted to talk about what I wore because I think the best thing to do is just go ahead and cover your bases so that you can quit panicking and enjoy the thing that you're there to enjoy. And I intentionally took you to a temple that I like feel like, you know, as soon as you get there, you'll be at ease because, I mean, there's a conservative synagogue a few blocks away uh, from the reform one that maybe would have been a little bit more formal. 
I've never gone to high holidays there, but I've gone to other services there. Sometimes I go to the reform one. Sometimes I go to the conservative one. It just depends on how I'm feeling that day. Conservative and reform are both. They have a lot of similarities to them. So in Jewish, conservative means liberal. Uh, That's something that you have to explain to people and they don't know what you're. So, yeah, you wore a three piece suit to sit in the sun for two hours, which was an extremely you thing to do. I mean, this is just a thing about me as a person. If I go somewhere or, you know, if I go to like see somebody, if I'm just like going to my friend's house, I want the people who wherever I'm going to know that I am there because I want to be. So sort, you know, sort of as like a sign of respect. So if I go over to your house, I'm going to make sure that I look nice so that you know that I have a desire to be there. You know what I'm saying? So for like, so for important holidays, I want to make sure that my, my appearance conveys the level of importance that I place on whatever it is that I'm doing. So like, I make sure that like, you know, I, I wore the nice suit, but you know, I cut my beard the night before. So you know, j- just so that I would look nice. Like it's, it's, it's just a matter of trying to do things intentionally rather than just doing things because they're there and, you know, at, at yeah. convenience. So naturally I, t- I assumed that you would wear a suit and dressed accordingly. Yeah. Cause I didn't want to look out of place with you any more than I did with the, with the rest of the congregation. Yeah. So uh, how would you, how would you describe the general atmosphere of the service? So this is Rosh Hashanah service that we were talking about. Um, so as an outsider, what were your impressions? Um, by the so, way, we have a link in the show notes of the service. If you at all are interested in watching it for like two hours, it's like two hours. Yeah. But I mean, people could watch a few minutes of it and get the general feel. Yeah. Or they could watch the whole thing because it was interesting and um, I'm glad I was there. I don't want to say this in any kind of wrong way. So just take this as a blanket statement for the entire episode. If I say something that's like if my phrasing is weird or if I use the wrong verbiage, feel free to let me know. Yeah. Because I I would rather you call me out than end up on Twitter. Um, You're going to be fine. No one's going to get mad. (laughs) Like they understand we're we're having a respectful discussion here and that you're not familiar with everything. So it's everything's going to be fine. So my first impression was that the the flow of the service and like the different service related activities that people did were more like a Christian service than I expected. Hmm. Like we have singing, we have responsive reading, we have standing up, we have sitting down, we have somebody's going to read this thing and you're going to respond to it. I I don't know what I thought would be in a service if it wasn't those things or why I expected it to be so different. Then it felt more familiar than I would have thought. Yeah, obviously what you were expecting was that that's when the Jews go to like plan our takeover of the world. No, this, <laughs> but there, like there's a good reason for the that, – and that is a common observation. So uh, this is why I wanted to take you to actually a reform service because I thought that you know going to a reform service might feel a little uh, familiar to you because um, – so reform Judaism is one of the I, – I, I don't know if it's the most popular, but it is one of the most popular denominations in the United States. Uh, the big three ones are like reform, conservative, and orthodox. But orthodox has like a million different sub branches to it. So there are more than those three, but those are the main ones. Yes, there's there's other ones, and there's various offshoots. Th- those three are the main ones, and so most of the other ones are going to fall under the umbrella of like those three. Anyway, the history of the reform movement comes from Germany in the mid 1800s when 
some Jewish people wanted to try to reconcile Jewish culture, Jewish religion, and living Jewish lives with the realities of what was modern life for them. So modern philosophical thought, because, you know, Germany in the 1800s was like a, like in cities like Berlin or whatever, very, you know, a, an intellectual hotbed. So yeah, the, the yeah. whole like the coffee shops and, and it was where people were coming up with philosophy and, and yes. writing books and things. Yeah. It, Exactly. So they designed the service, they constructed it in a way that would have it be designed to fit into life in 19th century Germany. And 19th century Germany, very heavily Lutheran, not dissimilar to Catholics. So I thought that maybe you'd feel at home there at least. Granted, it has evolved since then. Um, and this is one that we went to in the United States. So it's going to feel a bit more American as well. But the idea was to sort of do Judaism with modern aesthetics so that Jews could function more easily within German society in the 19th century. Yeah. And that definitely explains why the whole feel of the service was closer to a Protestant church service than a Catholic church service, but still somewhere on that general spectrum. Yeah. So what were your thoughts on the service? Can we talk about, okay, can we start with talking about the, the pre-printed books that were provided? Yes. Okay, I was really blown away by those. And we got a picture of the one from the Yom Kippur service to put up on the Instagram. But there are these there are these books, very nicely printed. Um, the one for Rosh Hashanah was gold, I think. Not yeah. The bound in gold. Um, and you have these books, they, seem, they serve the same function as a hymnal and a prayer book would serve in a Christian service, but it's all combined into one thing, which was really interesting. So it's not only got the songs that are going to be sung, it also has the prayers that are going to be prayed, the responsive reading, the Torah portion, all of it is combined into one book where like the order of service, you just like flip through the book and they just tell you, okay, skip to page 184, skip to page 192. Well, yeah. Well, those books are, they're all published by, they're compiled by like rabbis that are going to be like the leadership rabbis in the reform movement. And then they're going to be published by a company related to that. And then they're going to, you know, publish them and distribute them to reform synagogues. So if you're a rabbi and you're like, yeah. okay, um, this is going to have everything that I could possibly need for this holiday. And so you can basically just go through that book. The, like the chief rabbis will have already said, okay, these are the things that are going to be relevant to this holiday. These are the things that you're going to want at your fingertips. And then you pick. Yeah. And then you pick like the things that are like must do's for you out of that book that's got everything in it. Exactly. And Rosh Hashanah is a big holiday. So it makes sense that there would be a specific book for that holiday because that's when a yeah, lot of people are going to be showing up. Yeah. That's what was really unexpected to me is that it wasn't like we, there are books on our chairs when we got there. And I was like, oh, that's a hymnal or like whatever, you know, like whatever the analogy for a hymnal is. Yeah, and not no, quite, it but was yeah. a specific book just for this holiday. And then there was another one for the next service that we went to. And that was one thing that really kind of knocked my socks off. I suppose like IFB, though, they don't have the kind of money to. No. Oh, God, no. To, even if they even if that existed, they wouldn't have the money to buy a, like, a book for one hall. No, no way. No. Um, so in the Catholic Church and in other like high churchy denominations, there's a book for the whole year and it will have selections from the scripture portions that we're going to read. It will have hymns, 
And it won't tell you like what day we're going to do what hymn on because churches do things differently, but it'll have all the hymns in there. It'll have several common prayers that people do in church a lot in there. In the Anglican church, it's literally called the Book of Common Prayer. And in more low church Christian denominations, they they just have like a hymnal. And then you walk in on the day of the church service and you get a printout like off the church copy machine that tells you it's got church announcements in it. It might tell you the title of the sermon and it will tell you what hymns you're going to sing that day. Um, Or in more technologically advanced and generally more liberal Christian churches, they might just project the song lyrics and the scripture verses on a big screen at the front of the church. Huh. But yeah, the idea of having a a book for a particular day was really interesting to me. Yeah. So think about this, though. So we went to the morning service for Rosh Hashanah. That is one service. There's also the Arab service, which is the the night before. There's a service the next day because Rosh Hashanah is a two-day holiday. You know, there's, I think, afternoon services or whatever. So you've got three or four different services worth of rituals that you have to put into one book as well right and then there's personal preference for the rabbi being like okay i want to do this part like obviously there's some things that everyone's going to do they're going to do the kol nidre um but right that's something you have to do you have to do like there are certain things like it just wouldn't be the holiday without it no like you like there's some things you have to do and then there's some things you're like okay we're going to do this uh because this is like my preference as a rabbi. So it, yeah, the, the, I don't want to like speak indefinite because I don't know for sure, but it lo- it seemed like to me like there are certain parts of that ritual that you have to do for it to be that holiday. Yeah. Or for that holiday to be done right. There are some things that you, that almost everybody is going to do. Yeah. Like the and Unitana Tokif. Yeah. And yeah. then there are some things that are optional and you, the rabbi can add in or cut out those parts to suit their own congregation and their own people. Yeah. I was going to say his own congregation. I was like, oh, no, nope. Rabbis aren't all men. No, they Isn't aren't. Nice? We heard a sermon from a female rabbi. Two we sermons. She, two sermons she was from there. a female rabbi. She was there for both services. And Did then you the like second, her? I liked her a lot. And then in the second service, she mentioned um, her child and then immediately mentioned her wife. And I was like, oh. Yeah. So I liked her even more. We have, we have uh, queer people leading... Uh, religious services in she uh, was very relatable. Judaism, so like I don't just like I don't just like her because she's queer people although that helps uh, she was also very relatable and very well spoken no she's good she's good I liked Solid I liked stuff. her um, she was very down to earth with her speaking style the service was I wouldn't say extremely highbrow but it was poetic and metaphorical which is all wonderful but I appreciate having somebody who's um, like her sermon was about, I'll drink to that. Yeah. Um, like this has been a tough year. I'll drink to yeah. that. So yeah. I, I appreciated the, the combination because with religion in general, I enjoy ritualistic and metaphorical and poetic religious uh, ways of ways of contacting religion or ways of experiencing religion. Um, but I think it's very important to balance that with realism. Yeah, and I also wanted to – that's one of the other reasons why I wanted you to take you to this uh, temple in particular because I wanted you to sort of see how there is that juxtaposition and also the maybe less formalness of it. I don't want to say – because I keep saying it might remind you more of – I don't want to say remind you of your upbringing because this is like very different from your upbringing, especially because it's like you know if the words are coming from a woman, then that's definitely not going to be like your upbringing, but – you know, the, I guess 
there is a bit of like the the juxtaposition between things that are very formal and things that are very informal. So these printed books, like we were saying, had a lot of supplemental information in them. So there was one place where people were asked by the rabbi to pause for meditation. And there were a couple different prayers on one side of the page that you could choose to read or some poetry. Or on the other side of the page, there were some prompts about well, if you don't know what you would want to focus that meditation on, here are three different prompts that you can read through and see if one of them speaks to you. Um, there was also just a Pablo Neruda poem like hanging out in the book at one point, which <laughs> caught my attention. Uh, and I thought it was that was probably the first time I've seen like specifically not religious content that supports the thoughts of a religious service just incorporated. So that was cool. Yeah, I, I feel like that's kind of a reform thing, though. Like, do you know how many Jews are really into Buddhism? No, but that makes no – well, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense, but it does make sense. Like I wouldn't have ever thought of that, but I can also see how some of the principles really line up. I mean so like a lot of times, depending on how I'm feeling, services at a reform temple can be maybe a little bit crunchy for me, you know? Yeah. But and but there's also a conservative temple like four blocks away if I if I'm feeling uh, like So you've been saying crunchy about like some Jewish activities and things that you've encountered lately and yeah. I didn't really know exactly what you meant but now that I've seen like like suggested Pablo Neruda poem in a book for a church service like I'm like oh crunchy okay I get it. Yeah, that's pretty darn crunchy. Yeah, that's I mean that's like maybe 50% of the way there. It can get like I mean, that makes yeah. sense. I follow a person on TikTok who is uh, extremely crunchy and extremely Jewish. So, like, I, I kind of think, like, oh, if it was – if the, like, people like her are kind of like what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know Which who is, you're talking about, but I think I know oh, I don't think what you you're talking her. about. Yeah. I can send you her TikTok. So I want to talk about the holiday itself, significance in that, and then we can use that um, – sort of context to talk about things that happened in the service. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, you've explained some of this to me off air. I found it fascinating. So why don't you go for it? Yeah. So I know that you are familiar with the creation story in the book of Genesis. It's not like we've spent the last month talking about it. And, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But Rosh Hashanah is uh, the birthday of the earth. It is the day that God created the earth. And it is that is the what the holiday commemorates. And then at the start of every new year, God writes down what is to befall us, what our fate is. And then 10 days later on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, they say that the fate is sealed. So they say uh, in the service that on Rosh Hashanah, it is inscribed on Yom Kippur, it is sealed. And that's just for the one year, like only for the next year until the next high holidays. Yes, so traditionally, when we talk about the days of awe, um, which is a term that is used for the high holidays, we include in that the final month of the year, which is the month of Elul. So it's spelled E-L-U-L. Um, the month before Rosh Hashanah, we are supposed to use this time for introspection, for thinking about how we can improve, how we have transgressed. But really, you know, what we need to do, you know, focus on self-improvement. So that's how we can spend the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is, is really seeking that atonement as well. So we were hanging out last year right around, I think, on the day of Rosh Hashanah, maybe the day before. It was the day before. And we, we made challah, which was delicious. Delicious. You make a round one for Rosh Hashanah. Um, 
I don't know if you know that. Yeah, because you made a round one. I wasn't quite brave, brave enough to try that. Hi, you were there. You were there. You were. She like just the doesn't size remember of a, it. You were the size of a peanut, but you were there. Um, and if you could stop pulling my headphones off, that would be cool. You can sleep. It's all right. Okay. Um, so yeah, we were hanging out the day before, and it happened to de- be the day that RBG died. Uh, which was bad enough as it was, but I was also pregnant and I had also just found out that I was having a girl. So that day sucked for me. Yeah. And I know it sucked for you real bad too. It was not fun. Um, that was, that sucked. That sucked so hard. Um, but you told me about one of my, like one of the Jewish traditions that I stand the most. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us? Can you share with our audience the significance of when people die on or shortly before Rosh Hashanah? Yeah. So on Rosh Hashanah, God decides who will live and who will die uh, in that coming year. But in Jewish tradition, if God decides that this is the year that you will die, if you are an especially good and righteous person, he will give you a full year. And so you will not die until the day before the new year starts. So you know who else died on Erev Rosh Hashanah the day before? Who's that? Is my grandfather, Sidney. So his yard site is the day before Rosh Hashanah in 1981. So did you just use a a word that specifically means the day somebody died? Yes, the word is yard site. It, um, yard site. So it's traditionally sort of like... Um, a lot of times it's used to commemorate the one year anniversary, but it's also like it also can be used like to save the day that somebody died. So and traditionally what you will do is somebody will die and then on their yard site, on the first yard site is when the tombstone will be unveiled. Oh, right. I've read about yeah. that. So right, right, that's right. that's how that works. I just I think the thing about um dying the day before Rosh Hashanah. I think that's the coolest tradition because number one, I know about a lot of traditions that try to predict someone's life based on what day of the week a person is born on. And of course there's astrology. But this was the first that I've heard about a tradition about specifically what day someone dies on. Yeah. In Judaism, a lot of times we commemorate people on the day that they died. That's that's a whole thing. But it, it is a beautiful tradition. It is also very sad. It is also very heavy because um, – so one of the things that you probably remember from the service, uh, I think it was – obviously, it is one of the focal points of these holidays of both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur was this prayer, the Unatana Tokef. Uh, and it goes like this, if you don't mind me reading it. It goes like this. On Rosh Hashanah, it is inscribed. On Yom Kippur, it is sealed. How many shall pass away and how many shall be born? Who shall live and who shall die? Who shall reach the end of his days and who shall not? Who shall perish by water and who by fire? Who by sword and who by wild beast? Who by famine and who by thirst? Who by earthquake and who by plague? Who by strangulation and who by stoning? Who shall have rest and who shall wander? Who shall be at peace and who shall be pursued? Who shall be tranquil and who shall be tormented? Who shall be exalted and who shall be humbled? Who shall be rich and who shall be impoverished? But repentance, prayer, and righteousness avert the severity of the decree. 
So there's this real sense of awareness of our mortality, of acceptance of things that are outside of our control. That is a huge, huge part of this holiday. And so seeking acceptance through prayer, uh, like I'll tell you, you know, after the year we've had, after the two years we've had hearing who will live and who will die, who by water, who by fire, who by plague in particular, the severity of the decree felt especially harsh this year. And it was very real, 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 real for many, many people. Yeah, I think all religions seek to help us deal with our own mortality and conceptualize what happens after death with the idea and hopefully the intention that those concepts of what happens after death will help us live a more righteous life. But Judaism in particular is really straightforward about death. And we've talked about this before, right? How Christians tend to kind of sidestep death and euphemize death to a high degree. And I really appreciate the the difference there. Yeah. I mean, this year, though, the strength of our will is definitely being tested. You know, I... mm, Almost everybody that I know has lost somebody over the course of the pandemic. There is a real sense that this is out of our control as individuals. You know, I mean, for me personally, I mean, it feels like we have this disease, it's killing so many people, but then there are also a lot of people who are acting so flippant about it, not taking precautions and endangering others by spreading it. And they're like, and there's, I know that there's nothing that I can do and nothing that I can say to change those people's minds, but at the same time, Like I know people whose parents, whose grandparents died from it and there's a real anger there and they're looking at these people and they're saying, you know, you're responsible for killing my grandmother. I will never forgive you. And in this, like in that sense, you know, of anger, the loss of control, that's very natural. So reading these words and speaking that prayer is extremely real. And at the same time, you know, you hear that you think somebody that I know was inscribed on this day a year ago and some year it's going to be my turn and I hope it isn't this year. Yeah, there was a a very straightforward, almost like facing death head on. That was that was a a different thing for me, Mm. which I definitely appreciated. But for all of that, the Rosh Hashanah service seemed pretty joyful. Yeah. It's not that there weren't a lot of very serious moments, but it seemed uh, more celebratory most of the time. Well, it is celebratory. And this is a new year. We celebrate it. We hope that it will be a sweet one. Yeah. I think that mixing in the celebration with so much death is unique. That's something that we don't (laughs) see in Christianity so much. I think that some Christians bring that in at funerals specifically. Um, But other than that, I can't think of having a lot of that combination. I thought that was, I thought it was a unique perspective. So hoping the year will be a sweet one. That's the deal with the apples and honey, which is the traditional food, right? Yeah. Mixing celebration with sadness is very Jewish. That's one thing that I've got to say here that to understand Jewish culture, you've got to understand that. So at Passover, we say that we would not be able to appreciate the sweetness of freedom if we did not also remember the bitterness of slavery. At Rosh Hashanah, we, you know, we cannot celebrate the beauty of life without the understanding that it is temporary. So we remember that, you know, everybody that's died. So the service that we attended 
was part in English and part in Hebrew. And there were readings and... hmm? You okay? Yeah, give me a minute. Yeah, keep going. So the service that we attended was part in English and part in Hebrew. And there were readings and songs that dealt with these themes that we've been talking about. Yeah. This, I mean, this book is going to have the words in Hebrew on the right side of the page usually, and it will have like a transliteration. So basically the English pronunciation on the left side of the page. And then below that, you're going to have the English translation. Yes. And I should point out that the book was backwards of how uh, books written in English are. You read it right to left. I picked up, I was able to pick up pretty quickly, thankfully. Yeah. Um, But the first time I tried to find a page number didn't go super well because they're flipped the opposite way Yeah, of, of how I'm used to books being. So that was interesting. And it was super helpful to have both the transliteration and the English translation available because I know like, oh, I don't know, 10 words and most of the alphabet in Hebrew, which is definitely not good enough to follow along. Um, and my uh, picking up on spoken Hebrew is very, very poor. Also, the Hebrew alphabet doesn't have any vowels. It's only consonants. And so if even if you were used to reading, like it, it, that still takes getting used to. Yeah, I can't read Hebrew written in Hebrew at all. My dad did try to teach me. I just I did, did not pick. Yeah, of course he did. Uh, I picked up Greek, okay-ish, uh, and Latin if it's written with English letters, I can do. But I did not pick up written Hebrew well at all. Um, still kind of want to learn later in life uh, when I don't have an infant. <sighs> But yeah. with a, with a transliteration where it's like English letters making the Hebrew words, I can pick out words here and there or prefixes and suffixes and sort of follow along. And then having the sections with the with the English translation under it really enhanced my ability to understand the service. I mean, they they know a lot of Jews read Hebrew even worse than you do, so it's very helpful. Yeah. Uh, and I I liked that. It gave me a unique ability to follow along with prayers and songs that were done in Hebrew. So that was that was great. Yeah, let's go talk about the music now. That's a yes. good uh, way to, to, to jump to a different topic. So a thing that was surprising to me is that the notes aren't written out. Like You don't have staffs in this at all. So it's just the lyrics. And I was going to ask you about that at the time, but I just didn't get to it. Do y'all just know all the melodies? Yeah. Basically, like so. If you if are you there grow not up, that many, or are there a lot? It's every melody is done, like that. Okay. Um, yeah. No. If you grew up going to see, you know the tune of Kol Nidre, you know the tune of the Shema. Obviously, you know the Shema. Like you hear that like eight, 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 every time, uh, two times, three times, every time, every service. Yeah, Shema Israel. Yeah, you know that mm-hmm. one. Um, the, the you know the tune to the baruch you know like all these two like you just grow up hearing them so you like you know them yeah um <laughs> in in christian church we have like hundreds of melodies there are some things that are always done like in some churches you'll always do the doxology and that's always the same melody but even for the mass there are hundreds of melodies and you just know the one that your church does and then when they switch it up on you it's very confusing <laughs> Um, but we always have the staffs printed out. So that was a surprise to me because uh, I thought I could sight read my way through the service and there was nothing to sight read. Nope. 
do they ever intermix the tunes and the lyrics, like mel- the melody that's commonly used for this song, but we're singing that melody with the lyrics of this other song? Does that ever happen? So this is a thing that comes up from time to time, mostly with the Passover, the, the Pesach, um, and so the four questions. Uh, there is multiple melodies that are used by some people, um, depending on your family's traditions. So sometimes it's Manish Tana Halala Mikol Halelo. And then there's an, a different one that's Manish Tana Halala Mikol Halelo. That's a different one that I've also heard. It's like it, sometimes it is the subject of a debate. The tunes and you know the the lyrics mixing that's not really something that I've noticed before. But one thing that you Jewish may have people getting into debates never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah, is that a joke I'm allowed to make? I feel like you're, that, you're one, seems like, that yeah, one seems fine. like fair game. No, that's fine. <laughs> absolutely fair game. Accurate observation. No, that, that like one thing you may have noticed was that during the Torah reading, so there's like a melody that's like baked in. You know what yes. I'm saying? So it's like you know what I'm talking about when you hear them chanting the tour that's like a yes. melody. So when the cantor did the Torah reading, she did it to this melody which I kind of assumed was a prescribed melody and not just her making it up as she went along. No, you can't like make that up, I don't think. Yeah, but that it is a prescribed melody. And it's just like one of those so Actually, in the second half of this, we're going to talk about this more. Uh, but like if you ever go to a bar or a bat mitzvah and you get to hear the kid doing their Torah portion, they will do like that melody. Like That's like a huge part of the lessons that you've got to take to do it. So sometimes you'll get like, this is like really bad. I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it's objectively hilarious. Uh, like a 13 year old boy who's doing it and the melody will go right over the break in his voice. And you hear that like a hundred times and you have to try not. Yeah, you have to try not to laugh at this kid who is sweating bullets in front of hundreds of people. I just think that's kind of sweet and adorable. It's, oh, it's hilarious. So I've, I've never been to a bar bat mitzvah, but Jonathan has. Um, and he said this pretty much the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> talking about uh, some that he went to for his friends when he was a kid. Yeah. Is there a specific key that the Torah melody has to be in? Um, what, I, what I'm specifically wondering, is there somebody in charge of a pitch pipe or something? I don't know. I, I, it's not really a thing where they set it with a pitch pipe. Like, you just do it. But also, like, so I just tried to think about it in, like, a different key in my head right now, and it sounded really wrong. I don't I don't know what to make of it. I, I don't know. I think it just varies. Like, you just do it at the pitch that is the that you just do it at. So what I found most interesting about this part overall is that it's not a perfect fourth and it's in a minor key. Mm. So in the Catholic church, um, if I go to mass, depending on who the priest is and who the deacon is, they may say prayers in regular voice or they may chant the prayers. But if they choose to chant them, it's usually going to be in a perfect fourth or in a major chord. So it threw me off a tad to hear it in a minor chord. Uh, And I didn't know exactly what I was hearing, but I went home and played around on the piano and I figured it out that it's around, um, it's around a minor scale. So when they sing the amen, it's like, amen, but it's, it's minor. Yeah. And it's different than it. So it's like C E flat G or G E flat C. Yeah. So that is interesting though, that you've said that 
to me because you've told me before how Catholic mass is modeled after like the Levite priests. So I wonder if that's where that comes from. I would assume that there's a high likelihood that there is a degree of that's where it came from. But you have to remember that what we have now is a version of a version of a version of what originally was. The Catholic Church changes incredibly slowly, but it does change. Uh, And the Mass has, which gives me hope, it gives me hope, (laughs) but the Mass has changed over time. And the Church has not been shy, of course, about westernizing and now anglicizing those old traditions. They're still chanting Latin. So that's a big question. (laughs) I'm going to answer it as quickly as I can. Before 1965, it was always in Latin. But in 1959, the Pope at the time had called for a conference of all the church leaders, and it was called Vatican II. A lot of things changed because of Vatican II. One of the major things that affected the people the most is that after Vatican II, Catholic churches had the option to do the Mass in Latin or in vernacular, so the local language of wherever that church happens to be, or the language that the parishioners happen to speak. So before that year, if you went into a Catholic church anywhere in the world, the Mass would be in Latin, but the church felt that people would benefit from being able to hear the prayers and especially the sermon in their own language. Because before that, the sermon was often in Latin, which mm. meant that people didn't really understand it, which was not great. So for the imagine last... going to church, just hearing some Latin for a while, like, and feel like, I don't know what that was. Yeah, it was yeah. not super effective. So um, no. this again, this gives me hope because the Catholic church is capable of real change that actually helps people. So, um, hmm. yeah. uh, so Now, if you went into a Catholic church, many parishes only do vernacular mass. So they might only do here in Portland, only English, or in a majority Spanish-speaking city in America, they might do it in Spanish, or in a a church that has a lot of Russian people, they might do it in Russian, or in whatever country they they are in, they do it in the local language. Many parishes also offer vernacular and Latin at different times. So you might have Latin Mass at 9 a.m. and then English at 11 a.m. or Latin at 9 and Spanish at 11 or whatever. Hmm. Recently, this year in 2021, Pope Francis encouraged people to drop the Latin Mass if there aren't a lot of people in your area who attend regularly and are really attached to it. And that caused so much Catholic drama. Oh, I'm sure that did. I'm sure that ruffled some feathers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um A lot of people are already not fans of Pope Francis because of his, relative to the church, liberal views on queer people. And this did not help his standing with people who are very traditional Catholics. Yeah. I can imagine that. Like, the thing, the difference between Latin and Hebrew, though, is that Hebrew is actually still, like, a spoken language. The people who want more Latin Mass or for it to be always available, the Venn diagram of those people and very traditional Catholics, like the people who take the church teachings on birth control very seriously and like actually follow all of that and wear veils to Mass. It's not the Venn diagram's not a circle, but it's kind of close-ish. Ray from Permanent Waves is very pro-Latin Mass. I know that about him. So that's the thing, though. Not everybody who loves the Latin Mass is super conservative Catholic. It's just that more people who are into one of those things tend to be more into the other. Personally, I am a big Pope Francis fangirl. Like, I usually agree with everything that he says. But this one, I honestly disagree with. I think that people who find the Latin Mass meaningful should have as much access to that as they want. I don't know. If it were me, I would probably be like, no, I want to go see this in Latin. 
if, if it were me i don't know i get it latin is the history it's the culture like hebrew language is as central to judaism though as the king james version is to being a fundy like yeah. that's yeah that's like the but that might be i just here. realized that might be my privilege showing though because i did have um i don't speak latin but my understanding of like latin word roots is very good because my dad taught me all of that so maybe that's a privilege thing Oh, see, I learned all of that because of music class. Yeah, that'll yeah. that'll also do it. Speaking of Catholics, though, I did want to mention the fact that the cantor and the rabbi are married mm. at the particular synagogue that we went to. And it was literally the cutest thing ever. They're adorable. So the rabbi made a mistake in the um, liturgy. I had to look it up to see if that was the appropriate word, but it actually is. Anyway, he... That's the word you guys would use. The, the rabbi used it. Yeah. So to describe the service. So apparently that word crosses over. Anyway, he stepped on her toes metaphorically a little bit in the order of service. And he made this joke about, well, I guess I'm washing the dishes tonight. <laughs> and it was just yeah. so cute. Uh, it really made me think, I wish that there were more liturgical roles for husbands and wives in the Catholic Church. You don't see that actually in a lot of Christian denominations because there aren't clerical roles for women. And I'm not coming up with a lot of places in Christianity where a husband and wife could have equal footing in a liturgical sense. In Catholic Church, I suppose a husband and wife could both be uh, servers for Eucharist. In a Baptist church, I'm kind of coming up blank other than like singing in church or maybe if the wife is the piano player and the husband is the song leader. Um, there aren't places where a husband and wife could have equal footing and I wish we had that. And I, like I was saying earlier, we had a, a female rabbi as well, not just female yeah. cantors. And as much as I support female and femme people in clergy and, and would love to see priests of any gender in the Catholic Church, uh, I wish there were more roles that specifically a husband and wife or a married couple of any gender could participate in as well. I follow a lesbian couple on TikTok, and they're both Anglican priests. Episcopal priests, and they just warm my heart, and they're getting married soon, Mazel and they're tov. wonderful. Uh, I just think it's the most romantic thing um, for a couple who is religious to be involved in a religious service together. So anyway, that whole thing just made me really happy. Yeah. And on the topic of the cantor, she is an older woman, and her voice sounds like an older woman's voice. Oh, but brilliant! Like yes, a top tier like opera. Not singer at voice. all saying yeah. that in a, in a bad in a bad way. I feel like we don't see the power and dignity of older women celebrated too much in society in general because we've kind of got this thing going on where everybody wants to skew towards looking younger, giving the perception of being younger. I loved having a female voice that sounds older, sounds mature, be such a central part of that service. That was really powerful for me. And She's it seems like... I mean, she's like one of the huge reasons why I go to that temple when I do because she, her voice I'm is a fan. so... I'm a fan. And it seemed like uh, I liked that she kind of ran the service. Like the rabbi would say, now we will do this thing on page 142. And then she would step in and she was actually the person moving the congregation from one activity to the next. Well, she's like a obviously like a trained opera singer. So, yeah, I'm know. just saying I'm a huge fan of that. That lady in particular. Yeah, Cantor, Cantor Kahana. Yeah. So uh, we Ida. should talk about. Yes, we should talk about the shofar and then we should take a break and come back and talk about the Yom Kippur service. Yeah, absolutely. So for the Rosh Hashanah service, there are a few times, a few places in the service where we get to hear shofar blasts. 
which is fun. Shofar is an instrument that is made from a ram's horn and it is blown like a trumpet. And so over the course of the service, I think there's like three, four places where the shofar is blown and it's blown about 100 times in total. So there'll be like Takia and you'll hear like that. And then the shofar yeah, is blown. Yeah, there are different types of blasts and they have different names and they represent different things. Yeah. I don't know exactly what they there's it was in the Tarua, book. <laughs> and then there's I don't I don't know what the other yeah. one. There's Takia, there's Tarua, and there's I don't know. But one is like one a battle one. cry, one is a celebration cry, and they the shofar is blown because it was blown when Moses was given the Ten Commandments. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. You know as much about this as I do. I uh, research things. And research. also I was reading along with that book. Uh, and in these pandemic times, there was a mask over the end of the shofar, which I thought was a just a nice touch. Yeah. So here we are. We're going to go to break. We're going to take up the offering. And then we will come back and we will talk about the Jewish Day of Atonement. We will talk about Yom Kippur. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Gavriel here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden Podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. We are back. We're talking about the high holidays. We just talked about Rosh Hashanah. We are going to talk about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, also known as the Day of Dread. And this service was not dreadful, but it was, uh, sorry, joke. It was different. Yeah. It was serious. <laughs> Very serious. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, this, it did open with Psalm 27. And this is one, I should mention that this is one of several psalms that were sung where I recognize like, oh, I know a song for this because the IFB has a scripture song for that psalm. How does the IFB scripture song go? So the psalm is, um, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills. And it's like, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. And to grandmother's house we go. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You mentioned that that sounded like a children's song. It is. um, Scripture songs are are typically children's songs. But um, we we had a conversation about this, and now we're going to have to do an episode on it. (laughs) Yeah. No, we did. That's how this happens is um, 
we actually on the way home we talked or when we were walking away from the service we talked about why ifb songs sound like children's music and i was like that's crazy yeah basically what happens is we talk about anything in the entire world and we get like four episode ideas yes so we're what we're telling you is we're never going to quit doing this podcast we're never going to quit doing this show um cross my heart hope to die um except that's not a thing that we should be talking about on when we're talking about yom kippur because i might actually die who knows put me in the wrong book (laughs) (laughs) anyway um oh god i I, I want to think that that's not appropriate that having been to yom kippur services i know that that no that's about it (laughs) it's very appropriate so yom kippur the jewish day of atonement comes 10 days after rosh hashanah and on this day we fast and not the IFB Daniel fast where fasting is just, oh, I'm going to be a vegetarian for a week, but I can still drink Diet Coke. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, I told you no. about that. Yom Kippur fast. No food, no water, 25 hours, not 24, 25 hours. I read something really interesting in the book during the service. It said that one way of looking at this is that Yom Kippur is all about understanding that at some point it will be your time to die. Sometime you will die. That's Sometime the, you will we die. have a holiday for it. It's <laughs> very Jewish. Yes, quite. Um, and that what, what the book said is that one way of framing this fast is that it's a the 25-hour fast is a preparation for death because you won't need food or water in death. Yeah, I've never heard that before, uh, but this is Jewish thought, so there are 1,000 interpretations for everything. That, like, if you'd have told me that, I could have been like, you know what, that sounds like something a Chabad rabbi would say. Or that could be something that some kid said on TikTok, and people are like, oh, yeah, that definitely makes sense. I don't know. I'm no theologian, but you said it came out of the book, so it's probably right. (laughs) Yeah, it was in the book for the service, and we did provide a picture of that on Instagram. Yeah. But it it seemed like... One of those things that like there are many ways of looking at this, there are many ways of framing this, because I've heard that the fast can also be about atoning for your sins. Yeah. Well, it's also supposed to bring you closer to God. I do want to put in here that the most observant Jews actually have five prohibitions on Yom Kippur. Five prohibitions, like the five stars that you should give us on the iTunes reviews. <laughs> I thought that was that sentence was going a very different direction because um, Yom Kippur is all about five numerically. Like there's five services five prohibitions and like five like there's five of a lot of things but the prohibitions are no food or water no bathing or washing no lotions or perfumes no marital relations and interestingly enough no leather shoes specifically oh i actually i definitely did bathe on yom kippur so sorry god so I, <laughs> I I did some reading about that, and I ended up in a deep dive of rabbinical definitions of shoes, uh, because <laughs> so <laughs> so and like this is this is what I enjoy because I can with Christianity as fast and loose as I tend to play it with theology. Um, there is still a part of me that's like, okay, but what is right? And with Yom Kippur fasting obligations to not wear leather shoes. I don't have a horse in the race, so I can kind of divorce myself from that idea of, okay, what's the right one? And read all these different opinions, and it's interesting. So one thing that you will know once you – because this is like a section of Judaism. Like the what qualifies as this, what qualifies as not this is like very much a can we find a loophole in this 
like yeah so like some rabbis were saying like shoes only count as leather if they are leather sold other rabbis said that even a leather shoelace would be considered a leather shoe um other rabbis were saying no faux leather other other rabbis were saying barefoot is preferable because the whole prohibition on leather shoes is to give the impression of being barefoot you need to wear shoes that you can feel the ground through so sneakers or slippers are fine but anything else is a no-go like i said before five (laughs) rabbis ten thousand opinions yeah so that was that was that was interesting um for the now you know for the benefit of anxious people like me who are maybe thinking about attending a religious service outside their religion, but need everything spelled out for them before going into a new environment and who have to check the menu at restaurants before they go to a new restaurant for the first time. So they know what they're going to order. So they're not too anxious like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's what I did. Obviously none of these prohibitions are required of me not being Jewish. And I figured that Gavi doesn't deserve to deal with me hangry when he's hangry himself. <laughs> So, uh, so I didn't do the. I'm a Taurus. I love to eat. Yeah. So I didn't do the fasting part um, because that's not like me. Fasting is not going to do anybody any good. Yeah. So the thing is, so we were at services. Um, If I were to hazard a guess, I'd say maybe like half of everybody there was actually fasting. You know, like lots of people. That's the thing, though, is that lots of people have plenty of reasons why they do or they don't. Like, so say you have a health problem or say you've got like an eating disorder. They tell you you're not supposed to fast. I was talking to one friend earlier and she said that she fasted for the first time last year. And she's like, I didn't feel like it brought me closer to God. So I'm not doing it this year. Um, I was talking to a different friend and she told me that she felt like the whole pandemic was a fast for her. So she didn't feel like she needed to. And I was talking to this man that I know. So uh, sometimes I volunteer where I deliver meals to Holocaust survivors. And the day before Yom Kippur, I was out doing this and I asked this one gentleman if he was fasting for Yom Kippur and he said that he wasn't because he fasted during the war and he felt like he had paid for his sins in advance so yeah yeah, that's like that's a line right there like I didn't even know how to respond to that yeah I wouldn't either like yeah fair man yeah fair like I'm not gonna say otherwise you know what you I mean not that I would have said otherwise anyway if he didn't have a a reason but not everyone does it not everyone does it Of course, I wanted to be respectful of people who were fasting. So, of course, I did not show up with a large bottle of water or a grande pumpkin spice latte or a cheeseburger in my hand. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That probably probably wouldn't have been great. I don't have – the other thing I was slightly concerned about was the leather shoes thing. Uh, I didn't know how observant people would be of that because I mentioned it to you and you had never really heard of it. Uh, So I did go ahead and wear leather shoes because I don't have nice ones that aren't leather. Uh, I did choose not to wear a whole lot of makeup. And my thought process was, what if there's somebody there who feels most comfortable wearing a lot of makeup, but they're observant of these prohibitions and they feel like to wear a lot of makeup would violate these prohibitions. So they're already feeling insecure because they're without like their regular face for the world. And if I show up with like massive black eyeliner wings, that might make them feel insecure and mess with their ability to focus on surfaces. Mm. Definitely not a must do, but like I was saying, I'm highly anxious and I need to feel like I've done my absolute best to be respectful 
so that I'm not an anxious mess and I can appreciate the service that I went there. So the makeup thing might be taking it a little bit too far. But if you showed up with a pumpkin spice latte to a young decor service, that would have been. (laughs) Oh, man, I feel like that's something that you would see like Elaine do on Seinfeld. (laughs) You know, like Elaine. No, it totally would. Yeah. Yeah. So so (laughs) oblivious, though. So the makeup thing was was more for my comfort, but I wanted to include that as an example because I do know that a lot of our listeners have also come out of cults. A lot of our listeners have come out of other high pressure groups and for other reasons. We see you. Yeah, may just ha- be an adult with an anxiety disorder. So if there's a listener that's curious about trying new things in general or going to a religious service outside of their religious tradition – I want to share what I did, even though what I chose to do was probably overboard, because that helped me manage my anxiety and not feel like I was being rude or standing out in any way. And managing my anxiety made this really great experience possible for myself. And I wasn't like on edge the whole time and I was able to appreciate the thing that I was there for. A of all, every Jew in the world has an anxiety disorder, uh, diagnosed or otherwise, and it's because of our generational trauma of trying to not be killed. But second of all, I'll tell you what is rude, is that towards the end of the holiday, I was watching some Thursday night football with my roommate. Uh, It was Giants versus Washington football team, and they kept showing ads for the new crispy chicken sandwich from Wendy's, or Hmm. maybe... or Jack in the Box or something. Uncalled for. Very rude. Yeah, extremely rude. Maybe I just shouldn't. That's God being like, you shouldn't watch Thursday Night Football on Yom Kippur. Yeah. You brought this on yourself. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe this is an example of self-persecution. <laughs> Giants versus Washington football team was very good, though. It was a great game. No, honestly, like, I have <laughs> gone without eating for 24 hours plenty of times in my life. It's the not drinking water that sounds a million times worse to me. Oh, yeah. It's it's 25 hours and it's terrible. Okay. So are you going to tell us why it's 25 and not 24? Because you keep bringing that up. And I feel like that it's not just because you want full credit for the extra hour. So I'll tell you why it is. It's because it goes from sundown to sundown. And so depending on how far north you are, there's some ambiguity as to what time the sun actually goes down. So they made it 25 just to be safe on both sides. But doesn't it say in Torah, like, don't they give you a recipe for sunset? Because doesn't Torah say that sunset is when you can't tell the difference visually between a red thread and a black thread? I feel like you forget that I've read through the Torah like many times. I mean, I don't know. Is that not current anymore? Do you just use the National Weather Service or does the synagogue put out a Facebook post? Like, how do you determine what time it is? If you make something subjective like that, keep in mind, these are Jews that that are doing this and we have not eaten or drank any water all day. We're all hangry. There's going to be an argument. There's going to be a fight over whether it's 742 or 743 or what time it is and who set their watch correctly and whose watch is the most accurate. And Because you know Uncle Manny is going to say, I have an Omega that's the same one as the <laughs> one that they wore on the space missions. And that's the most accurate. And my watch says that it's 438 and that we just can't eat for another seven minutes. Okay, and then Aunt Francine is going to like she's going to threaten to beat him with a wooden spoon if he says one more damn word about his space watch. (laughs) So, okay, but how do you know what time sunset is? You just make it 25 hours to be sure. Okay, yeah, but when do you start the 25 hours? 
Okay, yeah, but when, how do you know when to start the 25 hours? Because sunset is probably like 7.10 or something. So you just you say, okay, we're do it, it's probably like 7.10 and it goes to like 7.15 or something. But you're just like, you know what? We'll make it 7 o'clock. You chug a bunch of water beforehand, Gatorade up, then you start. You know? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, f- fair enough. Um, I also, in my deep dive on what constitutes a leather shoe, I also uh, spent a lot of time looking at Jewish star charts, which determine the time of sunset and like 12 oh, rabbis' God. opinions on them. Mm. I love reading rabbis' opinions. I don't know why it's very rabbis, interesting to me. They're always just very. Next week, we're going to talk about some rabbis' opinions on stuff. It's going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be great. They're always. If anybody tells you that they're like, especially if they're not Jewish and they're just like, well, Jewish law says blank, you're going to like that just makes me laugh. I'm just like Jewish law can say I don't want to say it can say whatever you want it to say. But like somebody's going to have some opinion on no matter what you think, somebody thinks you're wrong. So what I'm getting (laughs) is that it's a lot like case law in the United States. Because like, okay, so there's like the constitution and there's things that are law. And then if you're, if you're a, if you're an attorney and you're trying to make a determination about something, you're like, okay, well, the law says this, but that leaves this room for interpretation. And I checked out this case from 1985. So there's precedent. Yes. So I feel like like what the Talmud is. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the Talmud is like all rabbis writing about stuff, right? It's all just like hundreds of years of, of and like the talmud is like that. bigger than yeah. we think it is like i, I had i had this one ad- there's more than one of them. exactly like- i had this idea that the talmud was like contradicts itself man <laughs> hey i love my baby but she wants to put her hands in my mouth while i'm trying to speak professionally and that's a little bit difficult for me <laughs> So, yeah, I had this idea that the Talmud was, like, a book, like, slightly bigger than the Torah. <laughs> like, one book. <laughs> That's not it. No. Uh, it's, like, a law library. Literally. Yes. But, anyway, I'm still standing by the idea that that a 25-hour 25 fast is not too big of a deal. But, like, I could do that. But not being able to drink water that sounds really rough and I would not want to attempt that. Yeah. So the water thing is legitimately difficult. You have to start hydrating and avoiding salty foods literally days in advance in order to not be miserable. And you have to start cutting caffeine earlier in the week so that you don't get migraines. If you drink oh, a lot right. of caffeine. Yeah. If you have like a caffeine withdrawal on Yom Kippur, that's going to be that's not bad be times. Fun. No. So services wise, how did Yom Kippur compare for you? Rosh Hashanah versus Yom Kippur. Different vibe. Different vibe, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So the liturgy, like the flow of the service, the prayers and the songs and the readings that were chosen were definitely more somber. There was was this moment early in the service, and I didn't take a notebook because I didn't want to be a distraction. But there was something very explicitly said, like, you're going to die one day. Might be this year. Yes. So Rosh Hashanah is a good time. We're talking about looking forward to things coming up in our lives, hoping for good, wishing blessings on each other. And Yom Kippur is like, oh, death. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that meme where it's like me during summer, me ready for spooky season. You know, <laughs> now, imagine that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. But, but in Judaism, spooky season is Yom Kippur. Yeah. No, imagine that service you went to, like, except for 
you have an empty stomach and a dry mouth. Yeah, that sounds uh, rough, for sure. Not easy. The liturgy also focused a lot on God's majesty. And I was surprised to hear the word sovereign and other kingly terms used for God. I, again, I don't know why, but I kind of thought that was just a Christian thing. I always assumed that you guys, that's interesting, because when I thought about, think about Christianity and Christians talking about like a king, I usually think of them talking about Jesus. Yeah. So in the, in the sense of like the last days, like the revelation, like when the world, when the world ends, that's when Jesus is going to be king, but referring to like God as king and comparisons of God between comparisons of God to biblical kings is actually really common. Because I was thinking, I guess I was thinking of the Kanye album, but (laughs) yeah, that's the idea though, is that we are powerless in the face of such majesty that our lives are literally in his hands on this day above all other days. I heard a lot of phrases and scriptures that were familiar to me. So both of these services were a big experience in realizing how much Christianity carried over from Judaism. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys carry stuff, but the overall message is very different. Yeah, for sure. But like, as far as phrases, almost every scripture that was read in English uh, on Yom Kippur, I recognized. Of course, that's not saying much because I read them all. you recognize all of them. Right. But like a lot of them were ones that were commonly used in Christian church. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, n- not just things that like, oh, I've read that when reading the Bible, but like, oh, I've heard a pastor preach on that, or I know a song, a scripture song about that. Uh, another example is I had remembered that the word hallelujah was originally from Hebrew, but I had forgotten that amen is also originally from Hebrew. You mean amen? It depends on denomination. <laughs> so you guys say, you guys don't say hallelujah, you guys say hallelujah and amen <laughs> you know well, well that kind of that kind of depends because the more high churchy people tend to say hallelujah and amen okay but the baptists say hallelujah and amen <laughs> well the baptists are wrong surprise surprise they're wrong um if, <laughs> that's if, the first time we've ever said this on the said that on the show well how would you like it if i called you saddy carpenter every day like that definitely like it's definitely not cool to just be mispronouncing words all over the place. I mean a lot of Middle Eastern people tend to pronounce my name as Sadi or Sadi. Sadi. Yeah, but I take it as a compliment because but, I like found Sadi as opposed to like rhymes with baddie. Uh like Sadi. Sadi. Like S A H. I learned that it's because there was a famous Middle Eastern poet like hundreds and hundreds of years ago named Sadi. And they assume that I might be named after that person, <laughs> which is so that's really cool. So I take that as a compliment when people pronounce my name that way. But it's definitely not OK just to pronounce things however you want with no rhyme or reason. Speaking of poets, though, I did not notice a Pablo Neruda poem in the Yom Kippur service. I did see an excerpt from Anthem, which is my favorite Leonard Cohen song. So that was cool. OK, see, so here's the thing, though, is that Leonard Cohen for so if Judaism had saints, Leonard Cohen would be a saint in like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It would be him, Albert Einstein, Mel Brooks. If all the Mel Brooks is still alive. Speaking of speaking of Leonard Cohen though. Uh, so, you know, that that prayer that we were talking about earlier, the Unatana Tokif. 
Yes. Yeah. The so Leonard Cohen has a song that's based on that called "Who by Fire." It is a great song. Highly suggest looking it up. I will put a link in the show notes if you haven't heard it. So yeah. I think there was a reference to "Who by Fire" in the Rosh Hashanah service book. But is is Leonard Cohen like? Does that make him like the Jewish Fanny Crosby? So, mm, so if I was going to compare somebody to like the Jewish Fanny Crosby, it would be Debbie Friedman. Do you know? Okay, you don't know. Oh, you know what? We did do a Debbie Friedman tune in the service. Debbie Friedman is like a, a Jewish singer. I think she died like ten years ago, but she's like legendary. You hear her music in like Jewish services all the time. Um, we did this song. If you're Jewish, you know this song. It's Misha Birach, which is the and it goes Misha Birach Avotenu You know that one? Do you remember that one from the service? Yes, I do. We definitely sang it. That's a Debbie Friedman like arrangement. But like, if if there was a Jewish Fanny Crosby, it would probably be like. Debbie Friedman Good to know. is who I can say. Yeah. So on the topic of music, uh, I was wondering if you would define uh, Avinu Malkenu and also deny, uh, also, sorry, also define Adonai and Elohim. I know that uh, Adonai Elohim are names for God, right? Like they think they're nine yes. names of God total, but also I think defining some of the words that are not names for God, like the commonly used like Avinu Malkenu might be good. The words of Venu Malkano mean our father, our king. It they aren't like names for God. They're like Right. No, there yeah. are there are other names for God that come up often in yeah. the service. It's not like outside of that that prayer, I haven't like or outside of it like a prayer, I haven't heard somebody like refer to God at like in those words. So I, you don't I, refer I don't to God as like our father like Christians do. I don't know. I because Christians Christians can just say like, "Oh, our Father," and everybody knows what that means. I don't know. I, it seems I, like a different thing, though. It's, it's a different thing. Yeah. It's I just, just thought we should talk about uh, we should define Avino Malcano because that song has consistently been in my head since we left service. Oh, it's a top tier song. It's a banger. It banger absolutely hat. is, and like there were a lot of great songs that I heard, but that was probably my favorite. And a neat thing that we got to see at specifically at the Yom Kippur service is that the B'nai Mitzvah class of the year did the Torah readings. Yes. And they yes, all yes, did yes. so well. So this is something, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, uh, but this is something that this synagogue in particular does. This isn't something you're going to see everywhere. I don't know if other places do it. Um, but I'm glad that you got to see it because, so you've never been to bar or you've never been to a bar or a bat mitzvah. No, that's correct. So what we got to see is... Um, for Yom Kippur, instead of having the cantor chant the Torah portion, what this congregation does is they brought out the previous year's B'nai Mitzvah. So the Bar Bat Mitzvah students, the kids who are 13 years old, 14 years old, they've had their Bar or Bat Mitzvah, and they had them chant the Torah portion instead of the cantor do it. Yeah. So you got to see the kids doing it. Yes. And so from what I've gathered, being asked to do the reading at a big service is an honor. Like at the Rosh Hashanah service, they had the cantor did the readings, but the first one was in honor of like certain community leaders. And like they were the, each reading was in honor of a group of people within the community. Yeah. And so for Yom Kippur, they had the kids come up and do it. And they just did such a good job. And it was a super wholesome moment because the 
the two cantors were up there on either side of them, like helping them out and cheering them on. Yeah. And it was just so sweet and wholesome. That was just that moment just filled my heart with joy. I mean, you've never been to a service where like a 13 year old boy has to go up and his voice is cracking constantly. But I mean, there was one kid who just like did the shit. It. Like, was that like, like the really small kid? Yeah, the the, the short kid. Yes, um, <laughs> there he, was like a gasp of like whoa in the crowd. Like, oh man, this kid is like, damn, this kid like knows how to sing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really neat. I just I loved seeing like them have the support though. So I have a couple questions about Torah. If you would like to do some questions and answers real quick, I would love to. Cool, because that. so taking the there are blessings before you take it out of the ark yes there is like a very specific ritual around like taking it out doing the reading there there are blessings and prayers that go all around like different parts of this thing and then there's another blessing for putting it back in the ark and there's there's a whole very prescribed way of doing it yeah it's a lot of this i think is based on like what the levite priests would do and there's yeah that was a a central part of both services but i wanted to make sure that we got to it so my first question that's going to be the central part of like any service is that you they take it out of the ark they say the blessings and they chant the portion they put it back in yeah i kind of got that impression that this is like how do i say the central part of the service yeah because different because different denominations of christianity have a different thing at the center of the service and it seemed to me like the Torah reading is the center thing for for not just for high holiday services, but like for any service. Yeah. If you go to any service, they're going to do that. Like is, I guess, would the Eucharist be the, the... For Catholics, yeah. Yeah, for Catholics. Okay. So for Catholics, like the the thing that you were there for, this the central part of this of the service is the blessing of and the reception of the Eucharist. So one thing in the spring... Uh, next Easter, we're actually planning on doing this now. I'm going to go to a service at a Catholic church for uh, for Easter. Yeah, we're, we're going to have a, a high holidays student exchange program. Yeah, it's going to be no, it's going to be really fun. I'm I'm excited. We're going to talk about Sadie's journey to Catholicism as well. Yeah, this uh, is going to be really. That's going to be in for, a few months. So for a Baptist or for a Catholic church, it's the Eucharist. For a Baptist church. And for many other Protestant churches, the thing that you're there for is the sermon. So in a Baptist church, all of the songs and all of the any scripture readings and everything else is all focused on and leading up to the sermon and then the altar call after the sermon. Yeah. So the Torah portion, Torah portion is going to be the most important thing. So, it's, yeah, it's like the, the thing for your service. Yeah. So here's my question. Let's get to my questions because we've been rambling. So my first question is. I have heard that the Torah has to be hand copied and yes. it, it can't be printed with a printing machine, printing press, right. printing machine. Wow. I still do that, that pregnancy thing sometimes where yeah, I can't remember words, even though I have not been pregnant for six months now. They, they don't do the Gutenberg Torah. And if the scribe makes a mistake while copying it, they have to destroy the whole thing. All Is of that... those things are true. Okay. But these are also the things that make it like an authentic Torah scroll. They're, I, I won't say they're difficult to obtain because if you're a Jewish congregation, there are established pathways of obtaining them, but they are extremely expensive and they like have to be copied by hand, word for word, perfectly by somebody who's literally like been training their whole life to do this job. 
So I'm not expecting you to have the exact cost, but can you give us a range of what you mean by extremely expensive? And also does this market? Yeah. And also I want to know if there are people who their entire job is just to write more Torah scrolls. Yes. Okay. No, like the literally, like if you're a Torah scribe, that's your job is is to be a Torah scribe, and you like have to train and train and train. So think about this for a second. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have five books, each of them copied by hand, word for word, perfectly with old school pen, not like ballpoint, old school pen, special ink, and from like the time that. The pen touches the parchment to the last time that it touches the parchment. It has to be perfect. Like I ballpark. I mean, it depends on how old it is, uh, how rare it is, how ornate it is. Fifty hundred thousand dollars, maybe. Wow. Like, yeah, sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll have silver on the handles. They'll be gilded. You know, like if you were to pick up one of those scrolls, it's like holding something that's worth more than your car. And if you like you hear about from time to time when people break in and like they'll vandalize a synagogue, they'll destroy the Torah scrolls. So it's like breaking into somebody's house with and like taking a knife to their Picasso. Um, I have unfortunately heard about scrolls being destroyed when there's vandalism. (laughs) And I've I've also heard about um, in places where there is a threat of vandalism, sometimes families will be allowed to keep the scrolls in their home. Like families who have a proper setup to keep it in a correct and respectful way. I haven't heard that, but I, um. I read an article a quite a while ago. It's been several years back, so I don't have like a, a reference. That's just what I remember from the article. But I guess what I'm trying to understand is if there's a to what level there's a spiritual significance in addition to like the great cost and the fact that they have to be perfect and all of that is like the more physical side. Like what's the spiritual meaning in Christianity? If somebody destroys a Bible, it's on the level of burning a flag. Like there are some people who would be mildly bothered by it. And there are some people who would be extremely shocked and offended and enraged. Like if you do that, you're probably kind of an asshole. Yeah. But like, like that where you're like making a really good point and you need to like have serious shock value to make your extremely important life or death point. Yeah. To me, like to me, like that's the kind of thing just speaking from like the American flag and the Bible, which are things that are like symbols that are relevant to me, not speaking to burning any other religious text. In contrast, if somebody breaks into a Catholic church. And they break a statue or destroy a painting. Actually, somebody did destroy a old and valuable painting at the cathedral in Portland a few years back, I think in the the late 90s. Well, that was unfortunate and sad because the painting had like value outside of being religious art. There isn't a spiritual significance to it. It's just sad and unfortunate unless they break into the tabernacle and steal the consecrated host, in which case it is the absolute end of the world on the level of like having a Torah desecrated. Wow. Yeah, so, like, think of it like this. Like, say you see a car get smashed up, like somebody's Nissan Altima. You're like, oh, that's too bad. I hope they're okay. But if you saw, like, a Ferrari 275 smashed up, it's like, you know, they're not making any more of these. You know, I mean, they they do make more Taurus, but, like, it's, they're they're difficult. That particular one can never be replaced. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can buy another American flag that's the same size. You know, you can buy another Bible that's the same thing. 
It's like the difference between burning a flag or burning an original handwritten copy of the Declaration of Independence. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. So it, it sounds like there's not an element of divinity about the physical scrolls, but they are an object of symbolism with like a lot, a lot of reverence. Yeah. But there isn't like a, a doctrine of like there being like a increased presence of God about them, like their physical being mm. holding divinity in any way. I don't, I don't know. I like, cause we don't like worship objects because that's idolatry. It's like, it's a sacred object, but it's not a, like a holy object. You know what I'm saying? It's like, not divine. I think is the word. Like there's yeah. no divinity in an object, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. I, I, so I don't think like the presence of God in the Torah scrolls is more or less than the presence of God in anything else because God is omnipresent. But like the scrolls themselves are like, they're extremely sacred and like valuable. You okay. know, it's, it's, you know, there's like history in them, like with the community because they last a very, very, very long time. Right. Okay. So that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I did want to dig into some of the significance of the Torah because it's such a big part of the service and we didn't get to it in the first half. No. Um. So I have another question. Are Go there, are there special rules about touching the Torah scroll? I'm not sure. I think really, you know, you treat it with respect, you know. If you're going to touch it, make sure your hands are clean. You probably noticed that they weren't actually touching it with their hands when they had it out. Like they were touching the handles, but they weren't touching the the the, the parchment itself. Because I don't know if you noticed they were when they were reading it and when they were chanting it, they had like a silver pointer. So their fingers weren't actually being used to touch it because I think the oils from our hands would cause degradation. And this is a, a an object that is supposed to last and be used for many, many, many generations. Oh, I just looked it up. Uh, apparently, Beth Israel's Torah scrolls have been in their care for 50 years. And they're on sheepskin or something else that could potentially last for centuries? I think it's, it's the parchment made from the skin of a kosher animal, like a sheep or a cow or a goat. Sorry, it's not vegan. Um, but like they can and do last centrally, centuries if properly maintained. I think the oldest one that we know of is from the 1200s. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So what is the significance of the Ark that the Torah is in? And the it looked like it was embroidered or velvet, maybe cover that goes over the scrolls. So the cover is there. It's just to protect it. Like I said, you know, it's significant. It's painstakingly made. It's valuable. Uh, they've got to protect it. The Ark, I think the Ark is is supposed to be similar to, you know, the Ark of the, the Covenant. But okay. like not, it, it's not like the exact same thing, but it's like that. You know, you keep it in there. I think that's what that's based on. I couldn't tell you for sure, but that would be my best guess. I'm sure that like, say you're the pastor of a church and you read out of a King James Bible that was given to you by somebody who you really care about or somebody that was really influential to you. That's going to be like extremely significant and it's going to hold a lot of sentimental value. But it's not the same thing as having this like handwritten scroll of holy text that in some cases could be hundreds of years old. So like if you look up Torah scrolls, you're trying to buy a Torah scroll online. A lot of the ones that you see are like, okay, this one is refurbished and it's from the 1890s, you know, like, or like they're that old. So I'm sure that you like grew up hearing something like, oh, our hymnals were a gift from X person who donated us to them. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. Well, 
hearing somebody say, oh, our Torah scrolls were a gift from X person and they've been on, in our use for like 60 years. It's like, holy crap, that person 60 years ago dropped 100 G's on this synagogue and that's why they have a building named after them. Like that's, it's like a, a, a level above that. Okay, so I don't feel like I fully, fully got it, um, but I definitely feel like I have more of an understanding from that. Yeah, well, the Torah scrolls, they're just like super important and they're, not easy to come by. So the last part of the service that I wanted to bring up is the confession. There's a really long list of sins, and apparently the tradition is to have them arranged alphabetically and have one sin for each letter of the alphabet. And I thought that was really neat. From what I read, it's meant to help you think of more saints. It's a corporate confession, so it's something that like anybody could have done any of these sins but it's also meant to help you think of more personal things that you need to atone for yeah so i was wondering is yom kippur is that the only time that you have corporate confession like that where like everybody reads off like a list of things that they're corporately confessing confessing to yeah it's obviously it's not the same process as uh, as like confessing in catholicism because in catholicism their their whole idea of sins and confession and and guilt is way different from well, we ours, have the yeah. we have the sacrament of reconciliation, which is commonly known as confession, like when you go through your personal sins in private with a priest. But we also have a confessional prayer, which is a corporate confession that is really not too different from the one that I heard at service. It's shorter, but it's it's really similar and it contains the phrase for what I have done and what I have failed to do. So that's convenient because it kind of covers all your bases. Yeah. And we do that one at the beginning of every mass. Being raised Baptist, you have these ideas that you want to like turn away from sin in general or one sin in particular, maybe, depending on like your salvation doctrine or whatever. Right. But I think that for me and for most Jews, it's very different from that. A, because salvation isn't, it's complete, that that doesn't exist in the same way for us at all. So while I think a lot of our listeners come from Christian backgrounds and they have a particular idea of what sin is... Like in Judaism, scratch that like that idea from your mind because maybe the word that you should be using isn't sins. It should be like mistakes or transgressions. And the assumption isn't that we're going to not do these things. The assumption is that we are going to do these things. We don't need like a priest to confess to. It's more of just an understanding of like you've done wrong. What have you learned from that? How do you move forward? And the fast, you know, and this is a very serious service, um, and the fast is part of the process of atoning for that, because you can't really move forward unless you accept your own mistakes and you try to learn from them. I mean, that's just a truth of humanity. So as much as we like to make fun of things and the show, you know, joke about, oh, it's hard not to eat. Um, I do take this holiday very seriously, in particular, um, very seriously, and especially this year. It seems to yeah. me overall that Yom Kippur is a lot about renewal. Like, okay, what's done is done. What's going to happen is going to happen. Here we go again with a clean slate and a new year. Yeah, ish, sort of. There's a maybe, lot of yeah. like, there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah. And I, I definitely am not an expert from having gone to one service, but yeah. that's the layer that I picked up on the most this time. Yeah. And I feel like and there's just a lot of layers that I could there, always learn more about. There's a lot. It's a whole big thing. And I know that like a lot of people have very complicated relationships with this holiday because we all have complicated relationships with ourselves. And that's what this is all about. But with that, I think that we are going to uh, solely our brand new clean slate. Um, 
Uh, because next week we are diving headfirst into the discourse surrounding abortion. <laughs> yeah, prepare your anger, prepare your uh, your internet comments, uh, that your hate mail that you're going to send us. Uh, we're preparing for your tweets. We are preparing for certain people who are going to respond to us on their platform. <laughs> 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 because oh, they man. haven't yet they said they would soon no mm. i feel like this is the episode where i'm just gonna make everybody mad and i'm, I'm like i definitely feel insecure everybody a little bit about mad. talking about this but it does need to be talked about and i only got subtweeted by like three people that i know over the pride episodes um, there's been, I know y'all have seen some things on Twitter, but there's been other stuff on my private Facebook that I feel like oh. was directed at me. Uh, but it hasn't been that many people. So I clearly have not made everybody mad yet. So I clearly need to try harder. Yeah. So maybe this episode was a bit of a palate cleanser because we talked about like hella IFB stuff for like, you know, Kent Hovind, uh, school, like education, all of this yeah. stuff, super IFB. We did something super not IFB at all. Uh, now we're going to jump back into the, the, cesspool of debate. yeah and we're gonna go straight into a big one no um, we're gonna just dive right into it you want to hear us talk about abortion you want to hear what sadie has to say about abortion um of course wanna... um just like to give people a heads up obviously this is a topic that can be upsetting and triggering to some people of course as we do literally every episode we will always try our best to not to not unnecessarily hurt or trigger people no, we we of course we do that every single time we talk about a topic that could be potentially triggering or upsetting. Yeah, no um, surprises. Of course, oh. Yeah, we're going to do the same thing that we always do and try to mitigate any damage to people who could be upset or triggered. Take care of yourself if you need whatever you need to be able to listen to that episode and enjoy it. Or if you need to skip it, do what's best for you. Um, if you do need to skip it, download it and play it on mute or something so we still get your place for the week <laughs> yeah we do need those we're trying to up our we do we do enjoy and need those but yeah. um but seriously do what's best for you we love you no matter what yeah well i just feel uh, like it's right to give people a heads up because there that can be rough for some people well we've already started that's writing totally it valid. um whatever you think that we're going to do that's not what we're going to do yeah um whatever you think like if you want if you want to listen to us it just like be cheerleaders for some shit that you said on twitter or something and just be like these are the best tweets that i saw about this complicated issue that definitely reduce it down to making it seem not that's not what we're gonna do uh, we're gonna actually try to talk about this like we take it seriously because we do and other people do so have fun uh sadie do you want to plug your social media yeah if you can hear me over the over the chucky noises i can plug your social media for you if you want i got it um <laughs> you can follow me on instagram at sadie carpenter music uh and i might actually be doing some music soon so um oh send, hey. me, good, send me good vibes i have some songs written um that i am trying to get up the guts to record so like send me good vibes for that um you can follow me on twitter at hell yes sadie if you really want to fair warning it is bachelor season so like half of my tweets are bachelor related right now um but uh i hope you'll go on this journey with me through this season of life and accept my rose and follow me on twitter yes 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 uh you can follow the podcast uh leaving eaten podcast on facebook and instagram leaving eaten pod on twitter uh you can 
join our Facebook group and our subreddit. Both of them are called Eden Exodus. Uh, join our Patreon for extended and uncensored episodes, which will be very good. Uh, and you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E. And you guys have a great day. Bye-bye. But old rolling river of time Healed me in too many days No regrets, no confusion There'll be no pollution I'm so thankful I've decided To change my ways I'm so thankful Decided to change my ways. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.